Welcome to The Edges of Lean. I'm Bella Engelbach, and in this podcast, we explore the human and creative side of lean thinking, unusual places where lean thinking is practiced. We meet people who are practicing continuous improvement in many different flavors and styles. So come along with me on a journey to the edges of lean. Episode 75, Continuous Improvement on Couples Coaching with Dr. Robin Buckley. If you're a coach, have you ever thought about the family relationships of your clients? If you have a coach, how does your coaching experience engage your own family relationships? And more importantly, how might a couple benefit from engaging and coaching together? And how is that different from couples therapy? Dr. Robin Buckley specializes in executive coaching, which includes executive couples. I invited her to tell us about her approach. Dr. Robin Buckley, welcome to the Edges of Lean. Uh, thank you, Bella. It's great to be here. It's, it's really wonderful to have you. Uh, can you tell us about Robin? What do you do and what was your path? So currently I function in two realms. I'm an executive coach uh, who works with couples, and then I'm also a professional speaker. And my path started in traditional mental health settings. My doctorate degree is in clinical psychology. But what I found over time was that, unfortunately, our model of mental health in this country is based on intervention and crisis. And that didn't align with me as a professional and it didn't align with me personally. So simultaneous with me completing my doctoral degree, I also got my certificate as a coach. And what I've learned over several decades um, now is that coaching has that proactive preventative approach, which I think is either a great supplement uh, and partnership with therapy, or can really achieve some very specific goals that are outside of therapy for different clients. Yeah, that's really that's really important, right? Because um, often when we we think about about coaching, we th- we think about coaching as being something to help us uh, move forward, right? that you have a goal and you're going to move forward from where you were to achieving that goal. But you use the word preventative. And that is so interesting to hear you say that. And um, and I know so many of my listeners are coaches. So tell us what you mean by that. Sure. I, I want to start by saying I wish, and I think that some therapists, therapists doing traditional mental health work do have that preventative perspective. But again, it's just mired in what our society right now thinks about therapy, that it has to be this deep dive into the past to see how the past is affecting the present. And then once people feel better in their present, maybe in some therapeutic realms, they develop strategies for the future, but not all. They get to that point of feeling better and then they're done with therapy. And so coaching is, here's where I am now, in my, in the way I was trained as a coach, here's what's working Mm -hmm. and build on those strengths. Here's what's not working as effectively. And how can I use those strengths to change my present? And then how can I apply those strengths or new skills to get to where I want to be in the future, whether it's in life, in my career, or in the work I do in my relationship. So it's preventing problems from happening in the future because you're learning from where you are now. I say to my coaching clients all the time, it's going to be really rare that I even ask about the past because we can't change the past. There's nothing we can do. There's no magic wand to change the past. But what we can do as humans 
is change our current existence and then make plans for where we want to be in the future so we're not replicating a, a, a dysfunctional pattern that we don't want. Right. And that and that really goes to as you go through the coaching that you are actually learning and reflecting on what happens as you try new things. Right. So not just doing the new thing, but also then stopping and reflecting, you know, how did that work and how can I make that a habit? Is that so important? Yeah, that that analysis is essential because otherwise I don't I don't consider it true learning if it's OK, it worked great. But yeah. without that question of why did it work or were there pieces that didn't work and what would we do differently, then that's not going to establish the future habit that you want, the future pattern that you want. Right, right. Um, yeah, that's and, and that's what makes coaching exciting, too, because then you can see how people grow and they're doing it themselves. It's yeah. what what you're doing is is not doing it for them but that but they're doing it themselves and it's so gratifying to yeah. see that happen yeah one of my clients once called me a sherpa and i'm like kind of love that because yeah uh -huh. I'm, I'm, I'm i'm you know letting you choose the paths i mean you hired me to let you know clear out the brush so you can actually see the different options but you're the guide you're the lead I, I'm just the one helping kind of get you to the path that really you want and that really works best for you. Robin, are there times when you are with a client and when a client is working on something that you recognize from your, your doctoral training that they may have um, an issue that needs a different kind of help? What do you do in those situations? Yeah, absolutely. So it starts from the initial call, honestly, Bella, is I try and make sure that I've teased out, you know, as best you can when you first meet someone, whether there is some true dysfunction, whether there is something going on in their daily life that it isn't that they don't like it, that is actually inhibiting them in a way that's at that clinical level. And because of my training, I'm really grateful for that background, even though I'm not doing traditional mental health anymore, it does help me identify because one thing that I think is so essential, not just for clients, but for coaches is to be really clear what the difference is between therapy and coaching. And when I hear words or see patterns in clients, you know, whether it's at the very beginning or somewhere along the lines that truly is reflecting some of the categories or criteria for a clinical dysfunction, that's a great opportunity for me to say, you know what, I'd like to really suggest therapy and I can give you some referrals, but I think that's where you might need to start or at the very least have it in place at the same time as we're doing coaching, depending on how significant the dysfunction is. And what I usually get is, well, you have a background, you used to do this kind of work, can I just work with you? Right. And for me, while that might've been a possibility when I still retained my mental health license, I say no, because I don't think those two should be enmeshed. I don't think that there should be that overlap. I think they're having that clear delineation between the professions retains the integrity of both professional uh, worlds. Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a really good point because, um, and, you know, when they could go the other way though too, right? That That's the other thing that is fascinating to me is, is and I think you already said something about this so when somebody is in therapy and they are um, managing to solve and address some some of those issues through therapy 
at a certain point, they should be ready to think about the future and, and should be ready to move to move to you know, further goal setting and further work to achieve those goals focusing on the future. And actually, you know, it would be lovely actually to have um, psychologists actually refer to coaches as well, if it, if it went oh, the absolutely. other way. So. Absolutely. I think that at some point, you know, again, I think that there are some terrific mental health professionals that do take that next step in helping create future plans or future strategies, but it's how to shift from here's my recommendation, here's what you should be doing, here's the homework for you to do mm -hmm. based on their professional expertise on what's going to improve the clinical issues, to shifting to that coaching model of more questioning and allowing the answers to come from the person. And that's a, that's a hard shift when you've been trained to be the expert in the room and be the one to help someone out of a clinical dysfunction because you you know the steps in place. And coaching, we don't necessarily know the steps because we're right. not experts. We're just helping, again, clear out the cognitive you know clutter so that people can start to see what the best path is forward. And those are two different approaches. And, and in addition, also just creating a safe space where somebody can try something and right. and have that opportunity to then reflect on on what what happened right. and do that learning that we already talked about, right? So that's uh, um, yeah, that's you know, it, it, they are so different and yet really could work, should work well together. Exactly. So, Robin, you do something very unusual which is um, executive coaching with couples. So tell us how you got into that and, and what's the story behind that? Sure, so a lot of my work um, as an executive coach was, were with, uh, was with female clients. I always gravitated to working and supporting women and, um, and was doing that at a time when that wasn't kind of a, even a trend. So when I worked with these really powerful pretty amazing executive, female executives, you know, they would bring up their personal lives. I don't know how anybody separates their career from their personal life, but <clears throat> women definitely have a harder time doing that in my experience than men. So they would come in and we'd be talking about their career and where they want to go on their path. And then all of a sudden we're also talking about, you know, their relationship with their significant other, or with their kids. And what happened over time is I started talking to them and having them reflect on, okay, what do you do well at work as a leader? What do you do well when you communicate with your teams? What do you do well when you have conflict with a colleague? And these women could immediately identify the strengths they put in place, the skills they had to manage it. And then I'd flip it on them and say, okay, now how can you use all of that, all your business acumen and apply it to your personal life? And their whole face would just shut down like, I, I don't know that I, I never thought about it or, oh, it's different. I'm like, why is it different? You're still dealing with interpersonal relationships and communication and leadership and followership in your home life. So the more I would do this with women and saw the success around it, I realized that it could be applied into a really interesting model for couples coaching. And what I also saw from my background in mental health is people are often very afraid to go to couples therapy because they think it's like the last ditch effort before they get divorced, which of course it's not, but again, societal stigma. Um, or one person was really hesitant to do the therapy while the other partner wanted it. So I started thinking about what if, what if there was a different way? What if there was a way to get the relationship you want in the, in the present 
and create specific plans and strategies to get the relationship to a place you want in the future? And how could coaching be used to create that? Because coaching, at least that I've, I have yet to find other people that are applying this coaching model to a couple's relationship. So that's what I started doing. And it has been, you know, about 10 years of a lot of wow. fun. Yeah. Wow. Wow. So I have certainly seen this in, in my coaching practice where, and, and I do focus more on women as well, where um, a woman is talking about her goals and her dreams. And I ask that question. So how does, what does your spouse think about this? How, how have you discussed it with your spouse? And I think I'm getting kind of the same reaction, right? That there's a, that there's, I think there's sometimes a sense that that piece of how we work together as a couple just isn't always talked about. And, and so, yeah. And, and I don't know if that's, you know, is that, that that's not therapeutic, right? It's, it's just a case of, of, well, now we need to, to work on just as you would, you know, how you might talk with your boss or how you're going to talk to your direct report. We're going to work, work on how, what, what are you, what are you, what are you thinking about how you might talk to this person? Go ahead, your spouse. What amazes me, Bella, is that for a lot of these, you know, high powered or really professional individuals in whatever industry, they have a really clear plan. They have clear plans around projects and project management. They have clear plans about their organization or business and where they want it to get to. They have clear plans for their career and trajectory. But when it comes to our committed relationships, we just get married and we hope it's going to be long-term. We expect it to last forever, but there's no plan. And what I, what I joke with people about is, oh my gosh, on average in America, people put 250 hours to planning their five-hour wedding day and about $25,000 for those five hours. But nobody puts in that, I shouldn't say nobody, very few couples put in that kind of dedicated thought and strategy around their committed relationship, their marriage. They just expect it'll be okay and that they'll figure it out as it goes, which amazes me because no successful business would do that. <laughs> they would, they would want to make sure they have a plan and maybe the plan is to adjust, but they're going to have a plan. And it just, it cracks me up when I talk to couples and I'm like, yeah, this, this is, this is a good conversation to have. So why do you, why do you think that is? That, is it just um, a romantic think, view of marriage or? I do. I think that we, we, you know, when I ask couples, why do people get married? They'll say love and they'll say sexual attraction. I'm like, okay, so love and lust. Let's just call it as it is. Yeah. But those are really transitory experiences. They ebb and flow. And without the strong foundation of a plan and strategies and protocols and KPIs to analyze how the relationship is going, the love and lust are not going to sustain. And I think my belief is that's why we have such a high divorce rate, because there's nothing that there's no preventative, like, okay, when we get to a transition in life, I know you can't predict everything and we're not trying mm -hmm. to, but when we get to a transition, whatever that looks like, a new baby, a death, a, a new job, a move, whatever it is. How are we going to handle this transition? And how are we going to make sure that we have stopping points to evaluate how our progress is going? People don't talk about relationships like they do business 
And I think it's, and I get this a lot. People will say, well, it's, it is different, Robin. It's personal and it's emotional. And I'm like, right. And that's usually what creates the problem. The emotions and that subjectivity, that's what stops the strategic objective thinking. And I think more times than not in a relationship, those, that type of thinking, the strategy and the objectivity is really essential because then the love and the lust is just going to get better because you already have boundaries and, and guardrails around the essential pieces to make all the bells and whistles really enjoyable. Wow. Wow. So when you, when you work with couples, are they usually sort of mid-career, mid-marriage? What's the What's yeah, the timing? I, I would say a majority of the people I work with are, you know, in their 40s to 50s. Um, they realize that they're in a rut and they don't want to be in a rut. They they want a more satisfying, happy relationship. They will often say, we want to get back to where, where we were. And I'll say, well, that will never happen with me because we're not going to go back to where you were because you're not the same people. It's not the same relationship. Hopefully we can evolve. Um, so that's the majority. I also have a growing contingency of clients who are new to a commitment. So moving in together, getting engaged or getting married, and they either don't want to replicate the mistakes that they've seen other people make, like their parents mm-hmm. or family yeah. members, or they don't want to replicate the mistakes they themselves have made in past relationships. And oh, right. Yeah. So they are very, I mean, they are even, they are definitely the example of preventative where they're like, nope, I don't want to, I, don't, I want this one to work and I want a strategy to make sure it works because it hasn't in the past or I've seen people make this mistake. So that's really the two areas that I get with um, the majority around the rut. And then um, the ones that are fun, I'm like, this is really cool. You're coming in to ensure as best you can, mm-hmm. humans, you know, ensure success or at least have some protocols around get, trying to achieve success. Um, so that's been an interesting transition, probably in the past four years, where I've seen more and more couples on the brink of a trans of, of a commitment. Um, so it's been interesting to see the differences between both groups. That's excellent, right? That 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 bodes well for the future of a of of everybody, right? Because because a couple who's able to do that is going to be stronger for their for the rest of their family. They're going to be stronger for their neighborhood, for their right. community. And they're going to be better off at work, right, Robin? Because if you're not stressed about what's happening at home, then you could be much more focused at work. Plus, you don't reinvent the wheel. Like you, when I say to couples, like you're like, well, we need to learn new strategies. I'm like, maybe, or maybe there's some strategies in place in other areas of your life that work really well that now you can apply to your relationship. Or maybe there's some things you do well in your personal life that you could appropriately apply and, and work. But we keep you know, as, as humans, and at least our society, we keep these divisions between work and home. And the, 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 the misnomer I really talk about in some of my professional speaking is this idea of work-life balance. And I call BS on that every time. I'm like, there is no work-life balance. Balance means equity and, and a, a, like a really, a, to use the word redundantly, balanced approach. There's no way to do that, but we can have work-life harmony where both of them work together in a synergistic way and support each other to create something really beautiful. 
Wow. Well, so that's really cool. Uh, work life, work life balance. You know, we, we all know, and I think especially women know that there really is no such thing. It's, it's, it's never balanced because there's either something happening at work or there's something happening at home or something happening in both places. Right. And, and, <laughs> yeah. and there are often things outside our control. Yeah. So, so the balance doesn't happen, but just being, but just, I would think even having a conversation about what are we going to do? What, what would we do if you've got a really big project coming to fruition and we have a sick kid and even having those conversations ahead of time, right? That would be helpful. What, what would be a, a way to, to address that decision? Right. And I think with work-life harmony, it again goes back to the relationship where a lot of people say, well, you know, my husband and I, or my spouse and I, or my significant other do things 50-50. And I'm like, really? Really? Do you? Like, first of all, I've never seen a relationship where 100% of the time it's 50-50 because sometimes someone has something bigger at work and they need to be at work more. So the other person's going to take more of the home life responsibilities. My husband and I are in this situation right now. And sometimes I have to be reminded by my very clear thinking husband, he's like, I had my time to transition. This is your time to really start diving into having a more expansive speaking platform. He said, and I've got things covered at home. He's like, so it's it's understanding that again, that's harmony. We, we ebb and flow as the needs of our relationship and the needs of each of us individually um, demand. And that's okay because there's been times when I've done more at home than he has. And it's, it can, it can switch because of the harmony, not the, no, we are always supposed to be balanced. That's, that's really highly unlikely for humans, for work, for life in general. So understanding that, and again, applying it to all areas. So it, it takes the pressure off and you know, as well as I do, Bella, that when we reduce pressure and reduce the stress, then we function at our optimal levels at work and relationships everywhere. So that's the goal. Yeah. And in Lean, we talk about countermeasures rather than solutions. And the idea of a countermeasure, part of the idea of a countermeasure is that this is something that you do um, partly to see how well it works, but also because you understand it probably is not the ultimate permanent solution. And in fact, there probably are no, uh, in a lot of situations, there are no ultimate permanent solutions. But you apply a countermeasure, you, you, you know, you see, you see how it works. Um, and then maybe you apply a different countermeasure, but the, but the the process of deciding, you know, how we're going to find and pick our countermeasures, that's, yes. a, you know, that's the that, that's the important part, not what the countermeasures actually are. And that's it's funny you say that because when when couples come to me, now some I'm now that I've been doing this for about a decade, I'm having repeat uh, clients where they worked mm-hmm. with me for a little while, they created a great business plan for their relationship, didn't need my my support anymore, which is always the goal wonderful yeah now they're coming back because they're experiencing a transition in their life so if my couples are working with me in their 40s and they're coming back you know and they're starting to think about retirement or they uh, you know they one of my clients recently um their uh adult daughter moved back in with them with two kids because her husband died and they reached out to me they said okay we know this is going to be a really big transition to all of a sudden now have three more people in the house and how that's going to work, how that's going to look for us as a couple, because they're the foundation of that home and we want to plan. And so that we have a protocol of how to make decisions, how to touch base with each other. Like we just, our old plan isn't going to work because now we have more collaterals 
involved in the daily interaction. So it's like you said, it, it's not necessarily the countermeasures, it's the process and the protocols around establishing those measures and how to evaluate whether the measures they put in place are working so that there can be adjustments if necessary. Wow. So one of the things that we do in coaching, often when we, when we start with a client or, or throughout a coaching relationship, is to conduct, you know, various types of assessments, you know, to determine strengths or um, what, uh, what a person's, you know, um, preferences are. Um, and I was wondering, do you do, do this with couples as well? I do. I um, the one that I've really and it took me a while to get to it because my background is clinical psych and we do a lot of very detailed assessments. And the one that I keep coming back to that seems to really work is the Enneagram. And so the oh, really? yep, the Enneagram works really well because it helps couples understand not just themselves, but their dynamics with other people. And when there is a dynamic that really supports them as an individual and, and taps into their strengths. And when there is more of a, dis my word dysfunction, um, more of a conflict or challenge mm -hmm. and how that looks for them. So that's been really, a really valuable use. Um, my other assessments tend to go back into like SWOT analysis, which I do with couples. Oh, oh um, that's interesting. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> so we do that. Um, and then certainly values inventories, because I think that people will say, oh, I know my values. But then when I push on them and say, okay, what they, what are they? They stumble. They can't clearly say, you know, these are my top three values in succinct ways. And I, I do believe that knowing your values as an individual and then knowing your values as a couple, again, that's, that's part of the building blocks. It's certainly part of creating their mission statement, which I have every couple do when they start with me, because they can tell me why businesses and organizations have mission statements as the compass and the North Star and helps keep people unified. But when I ask them, well, why don't you have one in your relationship? All I get is crickets, Bella. They're like, I don't know. Why don't we have that, Robin? I'm like, I don't know, but you're going to have one now. So knowing yeah, that. I can understand that though. And I think it goes back to this, this sort of idea of relationships being based on, as you said, love and lust. And, and maybe, you know, our values are, you know, we, we love each other and we have a great time together. Well, you know, those are not the values that will help us get through financial challenges or new jobs or, you know, deaths, you know, deaths in the family or, you know, all the things that, that really happen in real life. Absolutely. Absolutely. So it is fun. It's it's. I love that there's a da a data driven piece um, that couples can use, and that's that's a, a predominant part of this model I use. That when we look at things, for example, like key performance indicators, because as you know, couples will very often say, "Yeah, it just feels like things are getting better." And I'm like, "Oh my gosh!" Again, in business, would you ever just be like, "Yeah, I think things seem good. Like it seems like we're doing okay." We would never do that in business. We would want right. clear quantitative and measurable outcomes to know yes we are making progress or no we need to change something and so that's a big piece of the the model of having data to support your progress and evaluate your progress so what kind of things do couples choose for kpis oh, 
and KPIs are, are often challenging, but it could be. Well, things- they're challenging in business too. I mean, a yeah. really good KPI is not usually the thing that the first consultant you hire tells you to use, right? So, right. So it, it you're, and I appreciate you saying, you know, different, you know, couples are different and they're going to generate their KPIs. And I can certainly help them because sometimes that's a, a, again, a cognitive block. But one couple I'm working with right now, so their um, their pain point, because we talk about pain points instead of problems or issues, because yeah. those have more of a subjective quality to them. Their pain point is that their communication is so ineffective that it's creating um, a, a toxic environment in their home. So that's their pain point that we, you know, after they have a free flow conversation and then we wrap it into a, (laughs) and so their KPI, one of them is that they are going to uh, experience 80% less fights during the week. And I help them quantify, well, how often do you fight? And they were fighting at least twice a day and they operationalize what a fight looks like. And their fights were operationalized as starting to get uh, their voices would get louder, certainly incorporated screaming and then slamming things. So we talk really specific. So we are clear on the behaviors that we are starting to build the KPIs around to be able, be able to evaluate. So 80% of uh, their fights each week. So at the end of each week, they had their, their weekly relationship business meeting and they would evaluate, okay, how many times did we actually increase the range of our voice, start screaming or slamming? And it wasn't an overnight, you know, slam dunk. They certainly you know, experienced a, I wouldn't say slow progression, but, you know, they were like, well, you know, one day we were good. I'm like, okay. So one day you fought one time instead of twice. That's still progress. It might not be at the 80% yet, but that's still progress. So it's, it's allowing them and training their brains to start to pay attention. Some of it, I think, is just priming their brains to look for when are we starting to escalate and then also priming their brains to look for, hey, we did an okay job today. We actually didn't raise our voices today and that's progress. So it's not just about measuring progress. It's about appreciating progress in the moment, which I think is really important for couples. That is really important because, because as with anything, if you imagine, well, I'm here, or I'm at one point, and then I really want to get over here, which is very far away from there. I'm not going to get there by tomorrow, right? right? But I can celebrate both the little steps that I make to, you know, get a little bit further along. And I can also celebrate when I run into some kind of an obstacle and I start to see what that obstacle really is. As, but that's huge, right? Because once you start to recognize the obstacle, you can start to work against that particular obstacle. Absolutely. What a lot of couples say to me when I say, you know, after three or four sessions, because I do see quick progress for many of my couples and they'll say, I'll say, why do you think it's, why do you think this is working for you? And some of them are very honest. They're like, I just think that we're thinking deliberately about our relationship more than we ever have, or more than we have since the very beginning. Like we're making choices because we know we identified this was a pain point. This is our KPI. And it's very, it's, it's very um, uh, at the forefront of their thinking. So when they see it starting to happen, it's like, okay, now it helps them scale back instead of like for many of us who have been in unsuccessful relationships, we're just going with no evaluation and no realization until we're in those uncomfortable or, or dysfunctional moments. Then we see the problem, but then we just keep moving on. So I, I do think that just that, 
a diligence and accountability, not to, not to me, but to each other, where they know they're going to have the conversation in an objective way to evaluate wh where we've been, whether it's in session with me, or like I said, most of my couples do either weekly or monthly business meetings around their relationship where they, they do the evaluations and the analysis and the goal planning and um, all of that good stuff. And they have all those skills from work, right? So, yes. so all you're doing is saying to, in a way, is bring that home, use yes. those same skills here. We're measuring something different. But hey, I tell you what, if somebody is raising their voice like that at home, they may be doing that at work too. And yep. how great for them now to start to recognize, all right, when this starts to happen, or maybe, you know, I'm feeling something, you know, I'm feeling my gut clench, but what if that happens at work now, how can I react better at work too? I mean, so that has to be so powerful for people. It really, I had a, um, a, a woman, she was a, a wife and a couple I was working with. And that was exactly what was, I said, you know, do do either of you use these strategies, the, the, the negative or dysfunctional strategies in other environments? And she was funny on the Zoom call. She just kind of like put her head down and she had a smirk, but it was one of those like self-realization smirks. Yeah. Looked up and she's like, I totally yell when I get frustrated at work and it's been an issue. And it's something that I wanted to address it because she's pretty high up. So she doesn't, I mean, she has someone to report to, but not many. And so after a couple of weeks of this being in place in her relationship, she actually did come back to us. As you said, Bella, she's like, Robin, I got to tell you, I started doing some of the things that, because they also have action steps of how to improve their communication. So it's not just the KPIs, it's actual things to try and implement mm -hmm. to see if they work. She's like, I started implementing some of my, the action steps from our, um, in the relationship to work. And I actually created my own KPIs to evaluate myself at work. She's like, it's actually working. And it, it cracks me up when, you know, couples or people are like, I can't believe it's working. I'm like, really? Yep, it's working. People, <laughs> people are still people. Work. It doesn't matter. Does, yeah. And, and that in lean, we, we would talk about that as being leader standard work. So one of the things that the leader is going to practice every day to get to, you know, to to do the things that they need to lead. And, um, you know, so that would be leader standard work for this executive to exactly. to practice those steps, those action steps. That's 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 fabulous. I, I love that because because you know we kind of I think we kind of see it the other way, um, right? With what you're saying is is you know you're bringing it you're bringing those skills from work into the home, but now you're going to have all of these additional relationship skills that you can bring back to work. And at the end, you know, at work, it's still about people, right? right. We, can, we can talk about money and and uh, products and everything till the cows come home, but it doesn't work without those, uh, those really good people relationship skills. And, and that again goes back to then you've created harmony because both sides of your life, if we're going to delineate it as simply as work and, and home, are now supporting each other. And you're replicating strengths from one environment into the other instead of, again, adopting a completely different persona at work or a completely different persona at home or, or mostly you can just be you. And that authenticity, Bella, I think is what allows us to be less, especially as women, I'm certain for men too, but we don't have to do those, those switches. We can just be us. And that is going to increase our energy and our functioning because we don't have to change who we are depending on the environment. We can just be us. And I think that's really valuable and helpful.
You know, that, that just made me think of something, Robin. So one of the things that um, I'm sure you know this, that um, that Black people talk about, um, and for those of us, those of you who are listening, you probably figured this out, but but Robin and I are both white, um, is, is, is the issue of, of code switching. So code switching is when you are acting in a different way at home with your family, speaking in a different way, and then you go into another environment, um, in some, it might be a business environment, and in that business environment, you now have to literally switch your language, switch the way you look, switch the way you behave in order to fit in. And code switching is exhausting. It's it's absolutely, it's, you know, a, people get very facile with it. But what you made me think of, Robin, is that I think um, for for women, and I think it's true for men too. You know, you know, men who have, have you know, very active family lives. Different person at home. You know, the, the the daddy who's reading stories to little kids and struggling to get them to bed, goes to work and is a you know a serious executive. That's code. That's a kind of a code switching, and that's exhausting. That's very, that's very true. And and when I've talked to, and I love that. I actually have never heard that term. So I thank you for that, Bella. But when we talk about code switching, to use this term, you know, I, I certainly am not telling that executive to bring in a children's book and sit down with his team and read. No, the book. no, no. But what about that situation of sitting down with your child and and with a book? What can we parcel it down to? You know, what does it create? What, how do you, as the dad in this scenario, create that environment? It's not about the book. There's something else. It's like, again, those interpersonal skills right. you're using with your child. Now, how can you use that with your team? So you're connecting with your child on a very one-to-one -one level. You are figuring out something they're interested in by choosing a specific book. You are using a specific tone. Maybe you've created the environment by lowering the lights in the child's room. You can, you can apply a lot of those. So making sure the environment that you call people into, you know, be in your office is, is receptive or, or encourages conversation. It doesn't feel like there's a separation necessarily like sitting behind the desk while you're talking to someone, you know, what tone and voice do you use? Do you make sure that you, you know, bring in some of their interests, however that might be and tapping into that. So you're right. It doesn't have, you don't have to switch. You might just have to adjust how you think about yourself right. in terms of, okay, it's not going to be exact replication. It's just going to be, what are the baseline behaviors in that experience that I can then apply in the other experience? Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. That's, uh, and again, the harmony, it's, it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's the harmony. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So Robin, when you, you're working initially with a couple, you, you you do this work to, you know, with, with the assessments and presumably, you know, talking, you know, talking with both of them. Do you talk to your, the, your couple of clients separately and, or do you always do it together? That's a really great question. I would say 95% of the time I do them together. Uh -huh. um, the, the separate, the separation of the couple to me is more reflective of therapy where there are things oh. that can't be said. And, you know, if we're going to develop the idea of psychological safety in the environment of couples coaching, then all voices are heard. And we find ways that they can, that those voices can be safe and received well, as well as communicated effectively. So it, it gives us an opportunity to really build on the psychological safety, which I think is important and is such a hot topic in, in workplace environments now. Um, every once in a while, there is 
a couple that within two or three sessions, if they aren't um, able to hear me communicate with them as a couple in terms of this is the protocol, this is what we're going to work on, um, then I'll meet with them separately just huh. to it's almost like a grounding to have each of them clearly hear me. So they're not competing. Um, and I only, I've only had to do that, you know, once with those couples that I had to do that with. Um, and it's not a reprimand. It's just a, what are your goals? And sometimes it's a very candid, do you want this relationship to work or not? And that's actually one of the first questions I typically ask couples um, just to make sure we're all on the same page. And that's their opportunity, if there's any doubt, to say, I'm not sure, or no, I'm really, I'm not in this. Um, that has not happened very often, but mm -hmm. it's just for those couples that are in that sticking place. But otherwise, it's really lovely that they they quickly fall into this model of talking about their relationship like a business. And it does change their communication and their ability to, to evolve. So, yeah, so you're treating them like the executive team. You're doing a little executive okay. board board retreat every every couple of weeks and exactly yeah that's gorgeous that's really really beautiful wow wow so do you want to tell us a little bit about your about your business itself and uh where people can find you absolutely so um within the next year my book should be coming out it's going to be uh tentatively titled marriage llc and it talks about this whole model because I do think that there are people that could apply it on their own. And I would love for them to be able to do that or at least uh -huh. have that basis before they work with me. But finding me is very easy. I'm on multiple social media platforms. So I'm on uh, LinkedIn, Instagram, and Twitter. We'll see how Twitter goes over the next <laughs> couple months. But certainly Instagram as, and LinkedIn. Um, as we're recording this, Twitter is, is, is going down the tubes rapidly <laughs> exactly thank you for clarifying yeah it, yeah anyway so uh linkedin and instagram easily easy to find me and then my website also easy all my nomenclatures are just dr robin buckley all one word no periods uh and the dr instead of the full doctor and they can certainly um contact me by just doing an outreach there's also a lot of the press that i've done so articles i've written articles i've been quoted in all my wonderful podcast uh, events are on there, which I love because it lets people get a deeper sense of me from the executive coaching side and then as well as the couple's coaching side so they can really see how it dovetails. Well, that's great. Thanks. So Dr. Robin Buckley, what is your one piece of advice for a young person or maybe I should say a young couple starting out? Oh, that's a great. I will always gravitate back, Bella, to a mission statement, sitting yeah. down and having a conversation, not just a conversation, because lots of people have conversations. And again, you and I know that when we think about something, that's a great first step. But when we talk about something, it becomes stronger. And when we write it, it becomes powerful. And writing down your mission statement, knowing that it's a dynamic tool that can evolve and change with your relationship but starting that out and doing some research around what a mission state statement looks like, because they're short. I mean, goodness, some companies have two word mission statements and I don't think, I, I don't hold couples to that, but three to yeah. five sentences. And the mission statement is about you as a couple, not your collaterals, which are your kids or other people you take care uh -huh. of. It's you two, because you're the foundation of your home and your family. So creating a written mission statement that you can regularly use as a tool to make sure you're on track and every behavior you do supports the mission as a couple. 
That is brilliant, beautiful advice. And thank you very much for that. You're very welcome. Dr. Robin Buckley, thank you so much for traveling with me to the edges of lean. Thank you, Bella. This is Bella Engelbach, and I'd like to thank Dr. Robin Buckley for being my guest on the edges of lean. What did you learn from this conversation? What ideas did it spark? We would love to hear from you. Find Robin at www.drrobinbuckley.com or on LinkedIn and keep an eye open for her upcoming book. Find me on LinkedIn or leanforhumans.com or comment wherever you watch or listen. Subscribe and tell a friend about The Edges of Lean. Please join me in exploring more of The Edges of Lean. There's a lot to learn. And check out my friends in the Lean Communicators community at leancommunicators.com. You'll find more podcasts and videos with lots of great new content every week. The Edges of Lean is written and produced by Bella Engelbach with support from Podcast Inc. This is a Lean for Humans production.